Now on WOR, this is Mets on Deck. Here's Pete McCarthy. Hi, Mets getting the Brewers tonight. We'll get you out to Miller Park for the pregame show with Wayne Randazzo coming up at 7.30. Before then, we'll have your opportunity to call in and win Mets tickets. We'll let you know when you could do that. Uh, but right now, we have the pleasure to be joined by one of the heart and soul players on that 2006 Mets team. Uh, it is former catcher for the New York Mets, Paul LaDuca. And thanks for coming on, Paul. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. How's everything been? Uh, you know, one thing I notice is, you know, on your your social media, you talk about the Mets a, a lot, and you know, you only played two of your eleven year c- career uh, with the Mets. Why, why do they stick with you so much? Uh, well, I grew up a Mets fan. Uh, when I uh, was born in Brooklyn, and then I moved out to Arizona when I was young. And when I moved out to Arizona, they had the the Phoenix Suns. And the IHL Phoenix Roadrunners, that was it. There was no Arizona Cardinal football team. There's no Coyotes. Uh, um, there was nothing. So you sort of associated where you were from. So I became a Matt, a Jet, um, and a Phoenix Suns fan. I, a lot of people go, why aren't you a Nick fan? Well, it was like it's almost like living in San Antonio. Um, I feel like that the millennials have sort of made that go away. Like, if you grew up in San Antonio, you're a Spurs fan. It doesn't happen anymore. These kids just are fans of of any teams. But I grew up in Phoenix, and you, the ticket was the Phoenix Sun. So, and nobody else should have to handle Mets, Jets, and the Knicks. And come on, let's be fair. That yeah, be a rough lot. But I'm now I'm, I'm Mets, Jets, and Sun. So I haven't been doing too well <laughs> in the last like ten years. I guess that's true. Uh, but uh, yeah. but you stay up uh, on what's happening with this Mets team. Uh, you know, real frustrating loss last night. W- what do you focus more on? Is it uh, do you see issues in the back of the bullpen with Jaris Familia, or is this a team that's just got to hit more? Well, I think it's a lot of different factors. Um, you know, Familia is obviously going to take the heat because of you know he's just gotten off to a slow start. But the last couple of years, he's been dynamic, and I think that. Him and Addison Reed, and Addison Reed has had some struggles, too, since going to Minnesota. Mm-hmm. They were used a lot, let's be honest. I mean, the starting pitching was not good the last couple of years, and Addison Reed and Jerry Familia were leaned on a ton. And maybe Familia, ball's not sinking like it used to. Um, but, yeah, again, you can't blow a start again from DeGrom. It, it, I feel like they're somewhat a team that rests on their laurels. They know that Jacob and Noah are going to go out there and throw good games, and um, they think that maybe one or two runs is going to win the ball game, and it's just not. And, again, the injuries hurt when you have guys like Frazier and Cespedes out because they give you professional at bat, you know? Yeah. On the bright side last night, watching Jacob DeGrom, what do you, does he remind you of anyone in the past? Is he as – taken a big step forward over the course of this year. He's been dominant despite the Mets being just 5-5 five and five in his starts. I think I sort of want to compare him to maybe a little mini Roy Holiday, uh, rest in peace. Um, I really think, you know, Roy got hit around in when he first got to the big leagues with the Blue Jays, and I faced him in the minor league. Um, and he was a guy that threw very, very hard, um, but he didn't really know where it was going, had a very good breaking ball. Then he just learned how to pitch, learned how to throw his two-seamer, learned how to work things. And I think Jacob now, at his age, having the surgery, um, he's fully recovered. But he pitches now. He's not a guy that just throws 96, 97. He's got a you know, devastating breaking ball that he can throw at any time in the count. Um, his fastball command has been immensely better the last two or three years. And that's what makes him special. 
Um, and he's got that release point of being a big kid at 6'5", at that angle. Um, and he's got to basically follow Syndergaard half the time, which is a tough act to follow. He's just, he's just been dominant all year, and he really has grown the last couple of years. And DeGrom's been better this year. Has that surprised you, considering how good the stuff is from Noah Syndergaard? Well, yeah, because it's always a tough thing to do. Like I've, I've said this before, I always thought that uh, David Price would be an easier guy to face because you're facing him after Chris Sale. So are you facing DeGrom after Syndergaard? It's a little bit different, though. Syndergaard's more of a hard-thrower, slider guy. Um, change, you know, everything is hard. Everything is completely hard. Where DeGrom's curveball takes enough off um, that I think it has batters in between. Where Noah struggles a little bit, his slider, and his, I get his fastball can get up to 100, but his slider and changeup can get up to 92, 90. So you're always looking hard off, off Noah where DeGrom has that one pitch where it is soft. And we're talking again with uh, former Mets catcher Paul LaDuca. And the catching spot is big for the Mets here as well. They lost both their catchers, Travis Darno, Kevin Ploiecki, basically back-to-back days. Uh, but when they've had either Ploiecki, Darno, or Mesoraco behind the plate, this team's 15-4. and four. In the games with Lobatone and Nito, uh, they've been you know quite a few games under five hundred. Can you give us a sense of the importance of, of that catching position and be able to lead a pitching staff and having familiarity uh, with the guys and, and what the Mets lost for those weeks when they were trying to sort it out with Lobatone and, yeah. and Nito, who's still a kid? Listen, those two poor kids got put in such a tough spot. I couldn't even imagine. I mean, I, I made it to the big leagues later than I thought of, than I thought I should have. Um, but then again, I always wonder... Maybe, like, I got put in the big leagues at the right time at 27, 28, where I was grown up. But those two kids got put in a no-win situation, and there was nothing the Mets could do. Um, handling a pitching staff, you made a great point. You know, when you catch guys in the bullpen, just in spring training, you want to try to catch every guy so you can sort of see what his ball does. Everybody's ball does different things. And, you know, you're asking a kid that's maybe in an A-ball and double-A trying to read – major league hitters that are setting him up and setting the pitcher up. And a pitcher, you know, by design, really doesn't really want to shake that much. And then when you shake a lot, you get out of sync. And, yeah, there's a lot to it. And I think a lot of people forget. You have all these sabermetric apps and all all these things, not apps, but, you know, these things for this and that. And the one thing that I always think that they always forget is whatever happened to catcher's ERA when a catcher's in a game. I know they have that as a staff, but they very rarely use it. And a pitcher-catcher relationship is absolutely giant. That's why some pitchers over time have had personal catchers. And now with the mound visits, you know, catchers are more leery to go out and, and talk to the pitcher in a given situation. But how, how, when you think back, you know, who are some guys – Maybe that you, you were able to lead through, or at least that there's a, a trust that you're able to build. Uh, I feel like Mezzarocco has figured that out pretty quickly with this Mets staff, but uh, I, I would think that takes a long time to really develop with the pitcher. Well, it does, but you got to know your pitcher's tendency. you got to know when he's slowing down. you got to know what's going on. you got to know what's going to take time. I always used to have um, you know, discussions with my managers, which, which is Jim Tracy, and then when I was with Willie, I used to tell Willie all the time, um, I would look at him after a pitch, and I would, like, maybe cut my the bottom of my my calf to tell him, hey, he's done. You know, um, what I'm seeing now is done. 
I'm going to call time. I'm going to make a slow walk to the mound so that that guy in the bullpen can get ready. Now, there's going to be certain situations where a pitcher will be like, I'm fine. I know I'm a little bit out of gas, but I get this guy out, leave me in. And there's been certain times. But as a catcher and as a veteran guy and as I grew older, I was a second pitching coach. And it was by design because, you know, Willie would want me and want that impact for me to tell tell him, hey, he doesn't have anything left. I don't care if it's the fourth inning, the fifth inning, the seventh inning. You're watching Kevin Cash starting Sergio Romo. Doesn't matter if he's putting him in in the in the position to win, and he's facing four righties. He's doing nothing wrong. Now, if he's facing four lefties, he's putting him in a position to fail. So, as a manager, you want to put your guys in a position um, to win. And you know, to me, I always used to tell, like I said, like if I saw something different or a guy really gassing. And you know, you know, listen, there's a lot of game guys. Hideo Nomo was a guy that. Never wanted to get taken out of the game, and he could pitch with no gas and get guys out somehow. But then there are certain guys that can't, so sometimes you got to alert your manager. Hey, take a look. He get somebody up in the bullpen. He's starting to run out of uh, gas here a little bit. Where the young kids, they couldn't really do that. Where Mezzarocco's been around a while, he can tell the pitchers, okay, his his curveball's a little flat now. You know, those young kids, they're not. You know, they don't have a voice to say that. Usually, when sure. they get in that locker room, the quieter the better, you know. Yeah, and that's the role you got to you know build up your esteem over the years. Is uh, we chat with former Mets catcher Paul Laduca right now. Uh, clearly, still has a love for the game, but of course, uh, working these days as a, a horse analyst there at the uh, NYRA, the New York Racing Association, and uh, we're gonna have the Triple Crown race coming up at, at Belmont. Is Justifiable try to pull it off uh, on Saturday, June 9th? And if you justify, are you rooting for rain? You want another uh, mud race to make this happen? Yeah, I guess so, right? I, I can't. I can't remember the last time I was just going to actually research that. But it's funny you asked that. If there's been three straight triple crown races in the rain, although assistant trainer today Jimmy Barnes said you should see this horse on regular dirt, he's faster, so which makes it even scary. Uh, the thing is, I think it's going to happen. I think he's going to win it. I think he's going to be the first horse in Seattle Slough. Um, to win the Triple Crown undefeated, the first horse ever not running as a two-year-old as he broke the Apollo course. And the reason why, his main competition coming in and resting to me that could have beat him was Audible. And Audible is owned by the same group as Justified. So they would never want to try to crush their own horse's Triple Crown dream, so they're not going to run Justify in the Belmont. And I really feel like he's the one horse. There's another horse called Hoffberg that maybe has an outside chance, but I'd probably have to side with Justify. And it's going to be 90,000 people on Belmont on, on June 9th, and I can't wait. It's going to be a lot of fun. Now, it's Triple Crown Day. is always special over there uh, at the Belmont Stakes. Paula Duca, uh, pleasure catching up with you. Thank you, sir. Oh, thank you much. Uh, I appreciate it, man. And anytime.